This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome everyone to another episode of That Wing Sky. We have survived yet one more week. Uh, we don't have a plan for this episode tonight because the event that we're going to talk about didn't have a plan. So in the spirit of that, we're just going to wing it and try not to talk over each other uh, the entire time. But uh, we have a number of panelists who are all here, who are all here tonight, who are also participants in the Surgical Speed Shooting Summit. Uh, put together by Andy Stanford. And it was a rather unique event. I guess it was as unique as Andy would be the best way to, to put that. And so we'll, we'll get ready to roll in here in just a second. Uh, but first, we'll go around and let everyone introduce them. And we're going to try to have some semblance of order here, but I'm sure it's going to break down pretty quick. So up first, Melody Lauer. Yes, my name is Melody Lauer, and I am the owner of Citizens Defense Research. And um, I attended the, the Surgical Speed Shooting Seminar originally as a participant, but then um, was invited to enjoy the instructor cadre, which was a, a great experience because that was the first time that I had ever been um, thrown into that kind of a situation where I had to adapt very quickly to uh, what I needed to instruct. And I think it worked out really well. I got to train with, um, alongside of John Holshin and also Greg Elifritz and uh, John Hearn as well, which I hope he comes on later on. It was a, just a really great experience for me. Carl Wren. Hey, uh, Carl Wren, KR Training. Uh, I was sitting here thinking, I realized I hosted Andy and Paul Gomez for a class in the early 2000s. And uh, Andy's been around in my world for years before that. And, uh, you know, that was kind of what made this fun. It was like, get to see what, what Andy had been up to all this time. John Holson. Hi, John Holson, West Coast Armory North, Everett, Washington. Uh, yeah, known Andy for, uh, gosh, a long, long time. Um, he gives credit to some of his early uh, exposure to some of the material that ended up in his book to uh, an organization called Insights Training that I was uh, one of the, one of the uh, primary instructors in uh, many, many years ago. All right, Michael Green. Hi, I'm Michael Green from Green Ops. I'm the founder there. Um, I got like almost 10 or 12 instructors that work for me. Uh, we teach classes all over the U.S. We're based in Texas and in Northern Virginia. Um, I, uh, I know John, John Holson back when we were in the Army and Special Forces back in the day. And uh, I went to that Insights class that he ran when he first got out. That, and that's where I met Andy. Uh, that course there and uh, you could definitely tell um, where you know as he gets credit to insights you can definitely see a lot of that uh, what was in the book and uh, his summit what he teaches how it originated from there um, so it's good seeing that all come full circle because that was years ago I don't want to date myself but probably over 20 years ago but um, no, it was good to be back on the you know on the other side as a student the uh, I was happy to be there. Uh, to tell you the truth, 
I could have spent the whole four days just listening to the other instructors, but you know, we had, uh, we had to teach classes, but yeah, happy to be here. All right. John Johnston. Um, so I'm a uh, John Johnston. I work uh, for Melody at Citizens Defense Research and I was for, I knew of Andy for a little while, but first time I met him was on a trip out at Surefire when I was still working with them. Uh, Andy worked on a different what works on a different team than the team I was on. So we had talked a couple times, but I'm actually kind of jealous of Melody because um, he had invited me to be an instructor from the get go. And as someone that is <laughs> uh, a planner, he's kind of like, Oh, here's what we're going to do. And I'm like, and I was asking questions and I'm sure that you're going to get into this, but Melody got to just show up and be like, this will be great. Whereas I got to have some of the anxiety ahead of time of trying to plan, which uh, continued on. And I, I'm pretty sure amused every other panelist uh, to a great degree since Lee's trying real hard not to burst into laughter. Yeah, John found out that we were on a teaching team together before the event. And he, he started uh, messaging myself and John Hearn, who was also going to be on the team. Like, we need to start planning now. And Hooter said, John, we don't even know what the parameters are. But why can we, how can we start planning? And I said, I'm just going to wait and just get there and you know, have all my anxiety at that point. I'm not going to worry about it now. Uh, all right. Andy has been a guest on the show, so the name should be familiar to most of our audience. If you go back several episodes, uh, you, will, you can find the Andy uh, episode he kind of rose to fame by winning the national tactical invitational is my understanding i know he was a classic uh, modern technique guy who was trained pretty much by michael harris was his uh, his main mentor and then you know got onto the competition circuit found the isosceles and and changed and then his book surgical speed shooting uh was written i forget which year that was published call do you remember the year I don't. Would have been late 90s, probably. Yeah. 98, 99, somewhere in there. Somewhere around in there. And um, Andy kind of disappeared from the public scene, teaching classes uh, for a while. And uh, basically, he, he got us all together to kind of present about the history of surgical speed shooting and then things that he was maybe working on. Now, how the event went was... Uh, the presenters were all, we all gathered in Tennessee on Thursday of this weekend. And the morning of that Thursday, Andy spent till lunchtime discussing the surgical speed shooting and other things associated with that. Then we went to the range Thursday afternoon and did some range work. Then we came back to the classroom at, on Friday and, um, each presenter was given 20 minutes, was it 20 minutes? Yeah. to get up and talk about whatever it was they wanted to talk about. And th those were very, very, very topics. And then Saturday came and, and we'll get into that uh, shortly. But before we do that, I really want to touch on a topic and make sure it doesn't get lost um, in the whole discussion. The tactical response people, the, the tactical response. This event was held at the tactical response facility and I got to say, I, you know, I'm deeply rooted in the range master family. I'm deeply rooted in handgun combatives. 
I don't think like we could have gotten 39 range master students or 39 handgun combative students together and then be that receptive. I was absolutely stunned yeah. at how adaptive and how respectful and how receptive and open that the student body was to techniques and procedures and things that were being taught to them that weren't necessarily what they get in their own school. But there was never a no, 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 that's not how we do it here. They were all just ex- the virtue paramount of what a student should be. And we're, I want to go around and let everyone have a chance to talk about that. Melody? Sure. I, I think I found them to be very hungry, um, which is such a delight as an instructor to have is a student body that is just hungry for what you have to say. And I agree with you. They were very, very receptive. And that, you know, um, when you get kind of, I don't say indoctrinated, but when you stay in your, your, your niche groups and your cliques, um, you know, there's always this sense of infighting that goes on and this kind of our gung fu is better than your gung fu. And um, I'd gotten perhaps erroneously an idea that I'd never really spent much time with attack response people, um, but I'd gotten kind of the impression that they were very standoffish to other, you know, other instruction outside of there. And that's not what we received at all. They were very, very open, very receptive, very eager to try anything that you you put in front of them. And in fact, um, very uh, personable as well, coming up to me personally and being like, hey, can you tell me more about what you're teaching here? Or can you tell me more about how you're carrying your gun or, or things like that, which I was very encouraged to see. And I think, I, I hope that that is um, building, uh, building blocks and building bridges to maybe tearing down some more of this, like my gun crew is better than your gun crew walls and, and starting to have a little bit more intermingling between the groups because I was absolutely delighted to be involved in that. Oh. I thought they were fantastic hosts, uh, particularly the staff and the instructors that work for James. Uh, definitely want to give those folks credit for doing everything they could to support the thing and also kind of not getting in the way, kind of letting us do, you know, what we had come in to do or what we, what we ended up doing. Um, and yeah, the students, you know, the thing I noticed was many of them were very close in ability and they, they were pretty consistent in how they did things. And that, that says a lot of good things about the school itself. You know, there was, you could have taken any one of those folks that we saw and they all, they were pretty reliable. You know, they were gonna draw a certain way, they reload a certain way. And they all shot to a pretty good level, which you know indicated they came in with a pretty good foundation. And I think that helped uh, because they were all good enough that then if we asked them, hey, try this thing that's different, um, it wasn't it wasn't a huge upheaval for them. They had enough foundation and fundamentals that they could they could adapt and they could give something else different a try. And uh, you know that they, they kind of roll with it. I think that helped a lot. So you know I I had a great time up there. It was uh, uh, all around just a great experience with the facilities and the staff and the students and all of it. John Holson. Yeah, I think uh, my, uh, my my two uh, friends on the panel here have really summarized that very well. Uh, I've known James Jager, the founder of Tactical Response, for for many years, and no one would ever accuse James of having a small personality uh, or a small ego. Uh, of course, neither would they accuse me of those things. So uh, that that's not in any way critical. Uh, but it it is very interesting to me to see the consistency of the 
attitude, how open they were, how motivated and dedicated they were. And, uh, and that's, you know, mindset is one of the most difficult things to teach, to, to pass on. Do we really teach it or do we pass it on in what way? And, uh, and frankly, that experience seeing his students has caused me to be curious about how they do pass on uh, what, what clearly must be being transmitted there. And uh, very, very interesting and very, very pleasurable experience. Yeah, I got to say, too, before we move on from you, John, that we wound up as shooting partners in the range session on Thursday afternoon and mm-hmm. get up to the uh, to the uh, target. And I look over and John said, like, how many ranges and how many states have we wound up as partners on range? <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> considering where how far apart we live and how infrequently, at least. You know, I travel to classes these days. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, for the audience, uh, John lives in Washington State. I live in Georgia. I know we were partnered at a Range Master Instructor Reunion mm-hmm. here in Georgia last year. Uh, we were partnered at a Larry Mudgett class in Utah where we had the tacticals. And there's at least one other one. Yeah, yeah. I think there's been at least one other uh, Range Master event. So, yeah, sure. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, uh, Carl pinged in that he wanted to follow up with something else. Oh, no, that was Michael. Michael Green found out that Andy's book came out in 2001. Okay. He just shared that in the chat. Sure. Well, speaking of Michael, Michael Green. Yeah, no, I totally agree about the uh, the tactical response crew and the uh, the students. I was fortunate enough that uh, I was able to get a, a bunk in the uh, team room. So I got to stay at the team room and then listen to the students afterwards and see you know, not only the students, but the staff instructors that James has working for him, like their passion for being there and learning. And, uh, you know, all around when you have students that have that drive and desire to learn, um, I, I don't think uh, you're ever going to have a, um, you know, people who are 100% like um, into one specific technique. They were very well open to trying new things and they their thirst for knowledge and learning was just uh, amazing. And, and the other thing is that, you know, James is obviously doing something right when you have students that have been to, you know, multiple classes back to back and come by each year. So um, whatever he's doing, I wish we could bottle that and uh, try to spread that out amongst each other so we could have that kind of return ratio. But, uh, you know, we always tell our students the same thing. And James said the same thing when, you know, if you guys remember the last day there, he pointed out, that he, you know, advocates that his students train with other folks. And, you know, we, we do the same thing at the end of our classes. We highly recommend that folks train with other people because I may something may say something one way and another instructor from another course may say the exact same thing, but somehow it sticks to the student that I think that's worth it, you know? Yeah, I think it was uh, James's son-in-law. I don't remember his name. Uh, was it Corey? Uh, made, made the comment um joey i believe joey okay said that we tell our people to go to other places and to be good students when they go yeah well they were fabulous students so yeah and i think they all take the heart to being the good students wherever they go and, and i've seen some tech response guys show up at other schools and you know they do some different different things and like their scan procedure after an iteration and i've seen several instructors walk up hey on my line please don't do that and there's never been a, but James says, I'll just, okay. 
and you don't see it yet. And then they, I'm sure they go back to doing whatever they want to do when they leave, yeah. but I've never seen one be a bad student. Yeah, and just to see, see it all in one spot. I'm sorry, Mike, were you? Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I mean, we, we have, especially in Northern Virginia, we have, you know, all our classes are selling out in Northern Virginia. We've always had, you can always tell uh, when you do a pistol class, you mm-hmm. can always tell, Oh, there's one of uh, the tactical response students, uh, the way they scan after, after shooting procedures, like, wow. Okay. Very methodical, uh, you know? And so we'll, you know, ask them, Hey, did you train with tactical response? Yep. Okay. And, but the exact same thing, very open, never had any issues or anything like that. Um, they're always willing to try stuff. And I think the, the common ground that we see there is uh, that the students are always, they always have this thirst for knowledge and to learn how to get better, to new, to do new techniques and everything. And I just, I, I you know, as far as a group of students anywhere, um, I don't think I've ever seen that many folks committed to their craft or, or trying to learn, you know? And so it's really, it's really awesome to see that. And it's not just shooting, you know, they do medical classes and do everything and it's, a, they like to be well-rounded. And so, um, you know, I think we need more of that in this country. All right, John Johnson. Yeah, I was um, pleasantly surprised uh, because kind of like Melody mentioned, I, I had an idea going into that uh, and I, I was wrong. Uh, just flat out, I was wrong. And, you know, frankly, if I could have every single student that shows up at a citizen's defense research class have as good of an attitude um, as every single person at that event did, um, I'd be pretty happy, you know, it's really couldn't ask for more. Yeah. I just, for my own edification, it just reminds me of how I need to behave when I go to other people's classes. Yes. And as someone that, uh, had a rocky start inside of all of this, as far as, um, uh, <laughs> talking when it probably would have suited me better to not. Um, yeah, I frankly kind of wish that I had had that sort of um, grounding before I embarrassed myself uh, as much as I have when I was younger. Well, so we're on to Saturday morning and all of the students arrive at the tactical response classroom all the instructors arrive and while someone is giving a safety brief and i'm not certain who that was was giving a safety brief to all the students all of the instructors or presenters whichever term you want to use were taken into another room and it was basically like you for a team you for a team and you for a team you've got 15 minutes to come up with what you're going to teach for a two-hour block and that was all the instruction we were given. So like, and you have these targets available or anything else. And, and it's like, so the four of you that were on your team basically had to come to a, an agreement pretty quickly as to what we were going to present that day and kind of try to put it into a sequence and et cetera. And then I think it was uh, Greg Elifritz that came up with the idea that we would start everybody off by running through a skill assessment and then grouping all of the students by skill. I know we had to move a couple of people to make the numbers work. Uh, can somebody give me a thumbs up if it was Greg that did that? It was Greg and I that okay. uh, we kind of put our heads together, and I actually got stuck doing the safety brief. So you guys had 20 minutes. I had like uh, 15. So, you know. 
All right, so as we go around, I would like each of you to kind of uh, what team you're on, who you're with, and what you taught, if you can remember what the other people taught if they're not on the panel. Melody. Um, wow, that was quite the experience because at that time, I didn't even know I was instructing yet. So it was kind of like that morning, it was like, do you want to instruct? And I was like, um, sure, okay. And then I was in the room kind of like, who am I instructing with? And it was like, oh, it looks like there's shorter person over here, go over there. And so I was like, okay. Um, so I was with uh, Greg Elifritz, my fir- the first team, I was with Greg Elifritz, um, uh, uh, Claude Warner, and um, I'm, I'm really- Michael DeBethancourt. That's it, yeah, I, I can never remember his last name. And um, I'm so actually the have... Citizens Defense Research Secretary as well. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> you are you're the memory for sure. Um, and I was I was just kind of like, OK, so the, we, we got together and we came up with a plan. Um, and I was kind of like, hey, since I was thrown in at the very last minute, I will go last that way that, you know, if you guys going to take a little bit more time and I, it just doesn't end up getting to me. I was like, I feel, I feel like we should because Claude was going to do some sort of um uh, he was doing a 22 kind of study and he was going to do his own ammo and his own thing. So we were like, Hey, whatever time that that takes, then, um, you know, Michael will do his thing. Greg will do his thing. And if there's time for me, then I will just do something. Um, well, we, <laughs> we got to the range and Claude had forgotten his stuff. So he left to go and get his stuff. And so now it was like, oh, by the way, now you're second in line and you've got to come up with something like on the spot. So um, I was like, oh, oh, okay, um, sure. I guess I can do that. So I just just kind of after Michael, and I can never pronounce his last name. Say it again, John. To Bethancourt. To Bethancourt. Thank you. I I can never pronounce that. You just um, call him Bobo. Did, That's what he prefers. There we go. Yes, yeah. Bobo. Okay. So Bobo did um, a, a really interesting, like, uh, negative target shooting thing. And then next was me. And I was like, I guess I'll do transitions, you know, because we were talking about doing accuracy anyway. So I was like, so he just did this center target thing. So we'll kind of expound upon that or expand upon that rather and do, you know, center chest um, on an IDPA uh, target and then you know transition to the head and then Greg did a uh, strong hand weekend thing and we were just kind of like waiting for for uh, Claude to get back there so that was really interesting because like I said that was the very first time that I'd ever just been like you need to come up with something right now you need to make it, make it fit with the other people um, and it needs to make sense to what you're doing and you need to do it in like what, what we have like half hour 40 45 minutes not even and then you're passing all your students off to someone else you don't have time to jibber jabber you don't have time to over explain you just got to get to your drill and move on and um I think that was really good experience for me because um I guess I get the the true mark of a professional is when you can kind of pull something out like that make it fit make it work and then have people at the end go that was really good thank you so that was kind of like, and you don't have time to be anxious about it either, or sit there and write out a plan and, and talk to everyone. You're like, sure, I'll do this. Not a problem. So, and, and that's what we did. And it worked out pretty well. We were able to fill the gap um, until Claude got back. And then um, we were able to fit him back in and continue to do what we uh, planned on doing, which was, you know, or not pl- originally planned on doing, but kind of continue with our made up plan. 
I believe Carl had some, excuse me, Claude had some pistol problems. He did. Um, he, at first, you know, cause he wasn't there for the first one. I think we had what, three sessions, four sessions. Um, he wasn't there for the first one. The second one, he was having some, some issues with his, he had a 22, um, a little M&P 22. And then, um, but Greg actually suggested after a while, he was like, Hey, you planned on them running their, the 22 and then running their carry guns. Just let them run their carry guns, forget the 22. And, and Claude was like, you know what, that's a really good idea. And so he did that and he was able to get everybody through. And uh, it was really interesting what he was trying to, what he was trying to get data on, which I love Claude for that. I am a big data nerd myself. I love when people, and what fascinates me about Claude in particular is the, the fine detail and methods with which he goes to collect data and his explanations for why he designs his, his um, parameters the way that he does to gather data. And so I sat down with him and I was like, okay, explain to me your, this data sheet that you had. And he explained the whole thing to me. And I was just like, this, this is a genius at work that he can, you know, account for all of these different things. And it would have been very interesting had his gun not been malfunctioning so much to have actually seen the comparative data um, because what he's trying to evaluate for, not necessarily prove or disprove, but evaluate for is whether or not um, a 22 could be basically shot as effectively as, or even possibly more effectively than a you know centerfire gun, the guns that we typically carry uh, for self-defense kind of situation. And he had a um, you know very specific targetry that he had designed very carefully for that testing parameters. It was very fascinating to watch him run everybody through that because he is in fact the tactical professor and he lives up to that name. Yeah, unfortunately, Claude had to work this evening. I couldn't be here, but uh, he is. Uh, I've got to go to the to the store that he works at just to go in there and walk in as a customer one day. That's just... I gotta go to his paint department and just ask him for any, <laughs> any, and just see the level of professionalism that he has taken. Because he was telling me about that too, about like mm. how he's cataloged cataloged all the paints. And I'm like, of course you have, mm. of course you have. Carl Wren. So, you know, the thing, the thing that happens that first morning in improv theater or improv comedy, they have this rule and it's called yes and. And what that means is when you're on stage with the other people and someone says something, then you can, your job is to say yes and, and not to try to undo what they said, right? Well, that's what we ended up doing. We had to do that to a certain degree, we had to do that with the tactical response curriculum that was already in place and what the students knew. And then we had to do it with each other. And I was, I was super impressed with the fact that, you know, all the different permutations and combinations, uh, nobody got up there and said, no, what that last person said, that was completely wrong. And you should never, ever do that. Uh, we all were very good about working around that and showing different, you know, try it this way, try it that way which I think was important. I think that had a big factor in the success of it, that we weren't tugging them in radically different directions, you know? And some of that's because a lot of us had worked together before. I've hosted pretty much everybody or taken a class from everybody that was there as an instructor. And the, the few that I hadn't, I knew about them, you know, already or familiar with their writings or their curriculum. And I think that was true for a lot of us. 
So in a certain sense, I think we did kind of stay away from places where we didn't agree on things and that made it look more cohesive than it could have been. You know, we could have gotten down to just nitpicking each other's stuff and it would have been far worse than it was. And I think that that says a lot for the team. Uh, Ever was reminded of the children's book, Stone Soup. Anybody remember that? Where the, the person has the pot and the rock and then and they kind of con everybody else into bringing all the stuff needed to make soup. Yeah, that was Andy. Andy had the event and the event was the rock and the pot and the rest of us, you know, oh, wait, I've got a potato. Oh, look, I've got a soup bone. Oh, I've got some carrots. And that's kind of what, that's kind of how we made the soup was everybody had, you know, oh, I've got these targets in my car. I've got an extra timer. Oh, I've got a staple gun. And, um, you know, we kind of put it together that way which uh, was kind of fun. I, I called it a corporate team building exercise for the firearms training industry. And I think that's, that's really what it was. That was its real value behind the scenes um, for us. And uh, that made it fun for me uh, just to see all that happen. And Saturday you were teamed with John Johnson, John Hearn and myself, right? That's right. And then Sunday I was with uh, Don Reddle and what John Holshin, right? Were we there? It was Claude. Was Alan McBee? No, it was you no, and me, Alan McBee, and uh, and Claude. Claude. Right. That's right. It's all a blur you, at this point. What did you teach on Saturday? Uh, what did I teach on Saturday? I think I worked on cleaning up the draw stroke. We worked on learning the draw yeah, stroke. Yeah, you did reverse training. Reverse, yeah, reverse we, chaining. we started yeah. from ready to target, and we worked our way back to actually getting the garment out of the way and gripping the gun in the holster. And then the second day, I ran them through my three seconds or less test, but I showed how I use it as a training exercise. So my 20 round drill became, uh, you know, 100 rounds where you practiced and then you shot a string for score and then you practiced and you shot a string for score. And, uh, and that worked pretty good. I introduced them to kind of my, my drill that I use in a lot of classes. And I noticed that was one of the cultural things. They weren't used to working with timers as much as the rest of us were. And all of this, you know, looking at split times and looking at draw times and all that, I think was a little bit new for a lot of the tactical response guys. And I think if there was one big takeaway for a lot of them, I think it was the, uh, the timer and understanding its role in defensive shooting and not just competition shooting. All right, John Holson. Yeah, uh, so Saturday uh, I was teamed with Don Ruddle, uh, Alan McBee, and Michael Green. Of course, uh, Michael can, can address what he did. Um, the, it, you know, for me, the whole, the reason that I try and take, you know, two or three classes a year is to see how other people teach. Uh, I've been doing this for quite a few years and I rarely see a new technique. I rarely see a new way to, to do a thing, to shoot a gun or reload a gun or expand. And frankly, you know, when I do see something new, it's usually so outlandish at this point that it, it, it's just humorous rather than interesting. But what I find fascinating is, you know, my area of always being a student is always being a student of instruction. And uh, man, there are so many people out there who are just so good at that. And, uh, and I, I love seeing how other people do those things. So for me, I, I honestly reveled in, uh, in the way the thing was thrown together and we had to kind of, uh, you know, punt, so to speak. And I, I guess to be completely honest, I, I would say maybe we have a, a leg up on that, Michael and I, in terms of uh, a, a tried and true um, methodology in, in the military for any non-commissioned officer in the NCO is what we call hip pocket training. And if you've ever got 
a spare 15 minutes, you're expected to be doing something useful with your your guys and gals to increase their capabilities. So uh, I'm not foreign to the idea of you know throwing something together. But I think that you know the real magic happened here again, the quality of instructors and partly it's some of us have been doing it for a long time. Uh, some have not been doing it nearly as long, but the quality of instruction still showed through that people were able to put forth an idea, hear someone else's idea, hear a third person's idea, tweak my idea a little bit so that it fell in between the other two. Think about real quickly what order seemed to make the most sense, throw it out there, try it. I think on day two, we tried an order, and once I saw it the the, set, the first time it ran through, I said, "You know, that'd work even better if we swap." You know, I go at a different place in this because that that builds something someone else did. So for me, you know, the real enjoyment, and and I have to, I'll, I'll admit to something here. Uh, Andy came around in the afternoon of Saturday, and he said, "Hey, John, from the instructor's point of view, he said, do you think we would get more out of shuffling the deck for tomorrow?" or keeping the same teams. And I, I just said, saw from- John Joshua wince. <laughs> <laughs> I know. All right, everybody, everybody, <clears throat> moment of silence because yep. John Hurd is joining us. <laughs> Go ahead, John Joshua. Uh, I, uh, I, was, I was not the only one he asked, I understand. Uh, but I said, you know, strictly from a, uh, a, a, you know, a self-centered point of view, I would love to see other instructors tomorrow. I would love to to work with other people tomorrow. Uh, from the students' point of view, they might actually benefit more from from letting people letting the team gel a little bit. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I I really enjoy getting to work uh, with with different folks. And uh, and then day two, John Hearn, Melody Lauer. Who was were we were together putting up targets? But did we teach together? No. We didn't teach together, did we, Lee? Yeah. No. Uh, we're, no. We're in... Oh, Don Ruddle, I think, stayed in the group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was Don was was the uh, was the, the fourth there. So yeah, just uh, very very enjoyable seeing the level of professionalism, the level of the the nuance. Um, Michael, I hope, will expand upon how he used the timer and um, what he did. And uh, frankly, he used it in a slightly different way than I'd ever really thought about using the timer before. And and right there, I went back and started doing some of the things that he was doing in my own practice uh, and saw some improvement on some things. Uh, topics on day one, I focused on Two things, a concept of site video that I think is, is so important over site picture and how that applies to, I was already thinking ahead to the next day, I focused on movement and shooting in day one and site video because when you're moving and or the target's moving, uh, nothing is still, you better be thinking video, not still photography. So uh, so that was my focus. Don Ruddle uh, did some work on changing gears. So whether you're changing distances or size of the target or size of the target and the distance, but that throttle control uh, is you know, another term. And that fits right in as well with moving. Well, how much are you moving? How fast are you moving? So, so that fit right in. Alan worked uh, also related on something that I would say also is very related to, to changing gears uh, in that one as well. 
and I'll let Michael talk about uh, what he did. Michael? Yeah, so uh, John and I worked together again with, uh, um, with Alan and uh, uh, Don. And uh, one of the things that, that I did was I like to, in our classes, uh, we refer to it as uh, draw time reduction. And is what we do is we get a, a baseline of their draw to first shot on a uh, A zone at seven yards. Um, and then once we get that baseline, we give them about three shots. Uh, then is what we'll do is we'll have them dry fire, but we'll have them dry fire at a ridiculously fast speed and do that over and over again. And so we'll put a part time on the timer. And so now they're going well beyond their comfort level. I mean, a lot of them, you can, you can just tell when we do this, regardless of where we do it, people are like, that's too fast. It's too fast. And after about five or six reps, you know, there's, they're, they're grabbing the gun differently. They're, 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 they're actually starting to catch up, you know? And, um, you know, we ask them like the first couple of times, is anyone catching the, is anyone getting done before the timer? And like, no, I'm not getting there. But by about six or seven draws, maybe 10 draws into it, man, they're there. They're, and this is dry fire. You know, they're, they're getting the, the sights on the target. And then after that, we put them back on the gun and we get an average of those three more shots and see the difference. And the improvements are just, uh, I mean, they see it's quantitative where they see this is how dry fire works. And these are the results. And that's done in, you know, 30 minutes or less. And, you know, um, in reality, it's probably just five minutes because they do a couple of draws, you know, and we're like, well, if you did that in five minutes, what could you do every day in 15 minutes? How much more improvement would you have over those years, you know, or months? And so that right there is a really good, uh, a good way to show them because, you know, a lot of folks say, you know, you have training techniques out there, but it's like very few. And we tell folks that and we've all heard this before is you go to a class to learn something to practice, very seldom are you going to see huge improvements in a class. And we show them, here's your huge improvement. You just went from a two-second draw to a 1.5 second. You drew half a second. Or we'll have some folks who cut a whole second off their draw time. And it's like, hey, we just made you better right there in, in less than a couple of, you know, less than 10, 20 minutes, you know. And so imagine if you were doing this every day, uh, just a couple minutes, you know, what would your what would your increase? I mean, obviously you're going to have uh, at some point, you're going to have some diminishing returns, but you'll be better than you were before, you know? Um, and that's, that's the drill that, that, that I did that uh, Saturday. What'd you do on Sunday? I don't remember. <laughs> you were doing Blake drills, Michael. Oh, Blake drill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blake drill. Yeah. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. So I got a couple of my favorite Blake drill. Yeah. Where we're just, uh, hammering uh two shots on three targets so a total of uh six shots and you're driving the gun and the goal there is uh, to learn to drive the gun so you know a lot of people when they shoot they shoot a cadence right um and when they do the blade drill um when they have multiple targets and i'm like listen the the problem is that i don't want to shoot a cadence or shoot to a rhythm i want the sights to drive my my cadence or rhythm but if I'm learning to drive the gun, I'll shoot to a cadence so that it forces me to drive the gun or the sights to keep up with my cadence. Okay. So if I'm shooting a match or shooting in a defensive situation, I'm not going to go, let me make sure my cadence is there. Um, I'm just using that particular Blake drill to teach me to drive the gun or the sights faster. And so that's why I like that one. 
And so did that play hand in hand with what John Holstrom was doing with some of his site tracking stuff? Oh yeah. That was a great thing. You know, it's like, uh, you know, uh, everything we did, it seemed like every drill that we did, it seemed like they, um, somehow magically almost as if we knew what we were doing, you know, were progression upon each of the other person's drills, you know? Um, so that was, that was, you know, that was the best part. I think that we, we had that, 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 um, uh, that, that um, there's a word for it, but it's just, you know, it just clicked, you know, synergy. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> so did, did, did you come up with running that drill after seeing what John was doing or in your planning life that morning? Hey, what are you doing? Okay. Well then I'll do this. Uh, for the Blake drill, I think it did, but for the first one I did, it didn't, but it did. It, it all flowed together really well. Okay. Excellent. All right. John Johnston. Um, so Andy, by the way, Holsham, uh, completely blamed you for, uh, changing the teams up when I <laughs> kind of made angry face at him when he told me it was happening, but no, it ended up being really awesome. Um, day one, I was paired with, um, Lee and Carl and Hearn, and that was kind of handy because we are all, uh, range master, master handgun instructors. We, we've got um, at least some of a similar background in that respect, and it was really cool to watch Carl do um, the reverse chaining of the draw, and then Lee, when you were doing the trigger isolation um, stuff, I ended up talking about some of the things that I talk about with stance. And, um, honestly, I don't remember what Hearn does since he keeps losing you, Lee. I just figured it wasn't anything important. So, but no, um, that, that worked out pretty well. Um, and then day two, after the teams got switched up, I'm glad I'm amusing. Um, after the teams got switched up. I can't believe I abandoned my children for this abuse. This is just (laughs) awesome. Thank you, John. I love you so much. So, um, Day two, the teams were a little bit different uh, and ended up with the Bethancourt and also Greg Elifritz and Michael Green. And on day two, um, one of the things that I was trying to get people to understand is that being able to, for lack of a better word, remove some of the conscious mind, at least when we're doing like the stupid human tricks, um, shooting stuff, right. Uh, to essentially break a shot while the gun is still decelerating. I did an exercise with that, that I thought Michael, um, just knocked out of the park when he built on it, uh, with the Blake stuff, you know? So again, I am, you know, for as, for as much as everyone's teasing me about how anxious I was, I, I certainly was because um, I take, uh, and not that everyone else doesn't, but uh, I am somewhat of a perfectionist and I uh, have certainly made enough mistakes that I understand the ways that I can make mistakes and the way that I've tried to mitigate against that is like planning, right? And so, yes, yes, when there's not a plan, uh, I, I get a teensy bit anxious, but uh, it's actually one of the coolest things that I've ever been part of and it worked out great. So 
and from a personal standpoint, one of the things that I sort of learned from everything was that, uh, as Melody told me, um, you know, hey, you're on the roller coaster, just enjoy the ride. Yep. Look back through the message chain that we had before the event. You know, like you were anxious about something. Like John, just stand there and nod knowingly, no matter what comes up. Just stand there. Yeah, at one point in time, John walked over to me and said, nod knowingly. How do you do this? Just, just go. And act like you know what you're doing and just, mm-hmm. just continue on. Yeah. yeah. It was funny, but, you know, Saturday, John Johnston's like, we got to keep the same team for tomorrow. We all working great together. It'll, we'll, we'll, we'll stay together tomorrow and we'll come up with something. Yeah, okay. I nodded knowingly. And then, you know, along comes Andy. And the teams for tomorrow are, and he gets our assignments, and I can just see John Johnston over there just, just <laughs> I, doing I, what John does. Yeah, so in all fairness, I actually apologized to Andy on uh, on Sunday after we were all done with everything. I'm like, you know, Andy, I'm not going to lie, and I'm sure you could tell I was a little frustrated with you on Saturday when you said you were switching the teams up, but uh, you were right. I was wrong, um, and I am I am sorry. And uh, he was very gracious and kind about that, but I could also... Uh, uh sort of get the the general impression that at least in the back of it, his head he was thinking like well yeah of course dummy it was all right look who's here so all right john hearn finally joined us and so john say hello to everyone and then um we've already talked about the openness of the tactical response students if you have any comments on that and then kind of talk about the the experience of working in the teams Hey, everybody. Uh, just saying hi real quick. Um, I thought the TR guys were great. I mean, um, you know, I think that some of the stuff that we did varied from what they, the doctrine they had been taught and stuff like that. But uh, I think I don't think I ever went with a group of guys more than willing to try anything that we suggested. Uh, I do know that one of their requirements in their list of equipment is an open mind. And I would say they, they certainly brought it to our instruction as well. So I, I really appreciated that. Uh, that was the, the first, what was the, uh, the follow up question there, Lee? Uh, the team environment that we all worked under so the team environment was really really interesting and uh, i don't know what we has been said but um one of the quips that my, my friend randy harris and i have said for years is that you can either shoot or you can't right and if you can shoot it's just a matter of degree right and i think the same thing can be said for teaching if you can teach you can teach i don't care whether you've learned to do it formally or you just made a whole bunch of mistakes in a bunch of different classes and paid attention um, so I think we're in that same situation. It didn't matter that we hadn't, we only had 20 minutes to put stuff together. We were surrounded by people and Lee Weems with people who could actually teach. So, um, when you got those people together, you know, you didn't have to sit there. Everybody understood the crawl, walk, run process. Uh, everybody kind of talked about what they did and it was just, it was obvious just in the discussions, what order needed to logically follow for the people to get the most out of it so i think it was great working with the uh the level of people that we had there uh how it just kind of showed that if you can teach you can teach and you can make up stuff on the fly and do really really well so the the team injured the team teaching was a, a bit of a shock to me especially when we decided to switch the teams up because we had already been making great plans and you know uh what was it? i think it's like a, a john lennon quote life is what happens while you're making plans or something like that so uh it, it you know even then we uh were able to put together something just as good as if we had planned it and uh we're able to transition uh neatly between instructors and, and do so in a very complimentary fashion as well all right what did you teach on saturday 
So I focused uh, more on the application stuff, doing some of the cognitive pistol stuff, uh, basically letting them kind of, you know, we don't do much application in the training world because it's so hard to do logistically. So um, I ran uh, variations of my cognitive drills uh, both day. Uh, the first day was a pretty simple version where you had the, the three lights that I can control remotely. Uh, you know, one light was a headshot, two lights was a, a pair to the body, and three lights was a challenge. And uh, I like that from a variety of standpoints, number one. Um, I think that we did less shooting in my blocks and any other blocks. Uh, there was a lot of challenges, which is something you're going to do a lot in the real world. Um, but also you don't have that prepared script in your mind. We were talking earlier about shooting cadence and stuff like that. You know, if on the beep, you're going to deliver a headshot, you know how much you have to stabilize the sights and stuff like that. And you can, you can load that mental program and be ready to go. Uh, when you're going to have to be on the demand, either, you know, fire a headshot, fire a pair to the body or uh, challenge somebody, you can't quite have that prepared to go and you have to be able to flow uh, between your responses. So that was, that was the first day. Uh, the second day was the high-end version of the cognitive pistol drills. Um, we had some steel, three different targets of different sizes. Uh, this was done man on man to add some time pressure. And on the exposure to the lights, they'd either have to deliver a uh, hit to a very large, like a full-size uh, BC zone steel, uh, uh, an eight-inch steel plate, or a six-inch target, and they had to make that determination on the fly. So it was a, a great combination of, of having to think a lot. They had to pick their shooting cadence. They had to identify the right target, and they had to do it before the other guy. And uh, it was just really, really interesting to see how putting just a little bit of cognitive load on people um, affects people. Everybody says, oh, that's not going to bother me until they actually do it. And uh, I think it opens some eyes about the, the thinking process that has to be part of this, uh, uh, the training if you're going to be effective with firearms. All right. Uh, Melody, you had uh, another comment about Sunday. Oh, yeah, because I, I pretty much just talked about the day one. Um, I, I thought it was funny for, for day two because, you know, Andy came around and, and switched all the instructors. That evening at dinner, I, I, um, I figured out that I was with John Hearn and with uh, John Holshin and um, with Don. And I asked John, I said, you know, how can I compliment you? And he said, you know, well, can you get everyone shooting within a six inch circle at 10 yards? And I was like, absolutely, no question. And then I thought about it later. I was like, what if I can't get everybody <laughs> shooting into a six inch shoot at, a six inch circle at 10 yards? But um, to John's point, I think that that was really helpful to just have those moments where you're building kind of this mini program with your fellow instructors on the fly. Um, and then I had been told the wrong range I was supposed to go to. So I ended up like pulling up at the range, bailing out of the car, like running to the line and then being like, so I, it really went from like running to the line to instructing in like less than three minutes, no transition. But um, it worked out really well. And I think that our day two block was super well put together because it was, you know, myself, then, um, you know, uh, I don't remember the order particularly, but it was Don and then John Holshin. And um, I know we finished up with John Hearn and watching, just watching them all and how everything progressed from one instructor to the other and everything flowed together. It was not... I mean, it was planned like this much, but it's not like we sat down together for, you know, three days and hashed this all out. And I think, you know, the, the feedback from the students was 
just how how much they appreciated that and how much they got out of it. So that was great. All right. On Saturday, as already has been said, I was staying with Hearn, Johnston, and, and Carl. And the drill that I ran on Saturday was what I call the isolation drill. And it's a drill where you hold on to the pistol, just gripping it with uh, your middle finger, uh, keeping the bottom two fingers extended, and then you press the trigger with the trigger finger. And part of that is to drive home the fact that you need one finger to press the trigger, not all four of them on your hand. Because that's what really leads to missing is that people, they smash with all the fingers at the same time, and they pull the gun out of, out of alignment. It's not jerking the trigger, it's jerking the gun is the problem there. And then the, there's an ulterior motive to that drill. And if you can hang on to the pistol with one finger, why are you worried about the recoil? It's not a big deal. It's really not. One finger hanging on to the pistol, it's not a big deal. Yeah, I understand it may be a difference between being a B-class shooter and a grandmaster shooter, but for the typical defensive shooter, it's not going to be that much of a difference. Um, but the fear of recoil and the anticipation of recoil is what leads to missing the shots. And so that part of the drill is just a secondary thing. The first thing is to concentrate on uh, pressing the trigger with just that one finger, because if they're closing their hand as they press the trigger, you see those other two fingers close and you can use that as a teaching point. And then on Sunday, um, I initially was going to run the Bakersfield PD call, but that would have involved moving we had to have at least out to 20 yards shooting. Well, the, the drill that everyone else was running on our on our team was everybody else was shooting at seven yards. It's like, well, I'm not going to make us move the targets out further and everything else. So I switched and ran a wrong tool drill in which we, uh, I dug trash, dug uh, ammo trays out of the trash and we simulated those being cell phones and they had to get it out of their hands and um, to get their shots off. And I was greatly amused that Hearn brought these props that he spent hundreds of dollars in time building and I dug props out of the trash and and uh, and had success with it. I appreciate you laughing at that, Melody. Right. Before we move on to our wrap up, I'm not going to pass up the opportunity to have this group of people together and not have a discussion on a topic just to see what comes out. And I'm going to go to John Holston's uh, site tracking drills, which I haven't had a chance to see John present them in, directly in person, but I know what's going on in his drill. And it strikes me that when we, we do technical things like shooting a build drill, and that seems to be one of those standards. Well, if you can, you know, sub, sub two second build drill is the gold standard or everything. Okay. If we're trying to convert this over to, I'm trying to save my life. Yes, being able to do that sub two second build drill shows a very level, a very high level of technical competence. But I think it's also that same spot's not going to be there for all six shots. And each six shot, each individual shot has to be an individual uh, decision. And so John's drill, and I'll ask John to describe it, is where you're having to move the sights around for each shot. Um, wouldn't that be a better? Uh, I don't want to say, I don't want to get into it. Wouldn't it be a better? Let's just couch it in the terms of the technical skill versus the application. So John, yeah. if you would open it up with us, uh, explain what's going on with that drill. Sure. And then we'll go from there. Well, so from, from my experience, I learned that uh, 
shooting targets and uh, shooting in defensive situations is, is not identical. Uh, people move and you may be moving as well, but, but people move definitely when, when they're getting shot at. And the ability to control that gun and get it to come back down in the same place over and over again, that is a starting point. That tells us we have a neutral stance and we want to be able to do that. We want to be able to do that well. But the next level above that is we want to be able to move the gun around fluidly and fluently. And, and I, I use that term, it is like a conversation. You don't know when you enter into a conversation exactly where it's going to go. You have to respond as, as it develops. And frankly, we all do drills, you know, the casino drill. The, we, we do various drills where we move the gun around. But those drills, for the most part, the way I look at it, are quizzes or tests of your ability to move the gun and repetitive uh, exercising of them. Of course, you get better at them, but it doesn't actually have a conscious mental focus of moving the gun. So what I discovered was I was training law enforcement officers at the time. And these guys all had, were, were shooting 95% and better on things like the FBI qual, the Secret Service qual, various, various quals. Yet when I got them in scenarios, they were running about a 20-something, 20, 25% hit ratio with some munitions and scenarios. And I noticed how often the rounds were impacting the walls, leaving those nice paint marks right behind where the the threat was, right where the threat was and not where he was at the moment the shot broke. And so I said, man, I, I got to do something with that. And I got to figure out, you know, a moving target system. Well, you know, mostly those just run across a range or, and they're, they're rare and they're expensive. And what can I do to get them moving the gun around? So just kind of trial and error. So a simple five or six dot target I just came up with, and there's no magic to how you do it. I, I will point out there's some consistencies, but we want to get them to open their eyes and move the gun during recoil. So simply we do side to side to begin with. Then I do, for example, a, an, an upside down seven is, is, a, is one of the first ones we do. Then the mirror image of that. And then we more random, but the idea is, and, and I learned along the way studying about neurophysiology and how we learn uh, visualization and there's a technique involved where basically I'll call off the numbers of the dots. And this is not the command uh, target type thing. We're not trying to involve the brain in the decision-making process here. So it's not about mixing up colors and numbers and shapes, quite the opposite. I just wanna describe three points and I want you to connect those points as if you have a paintbrush in your hand and you're just going to connect those three dots. Well, instead of a paintbrush, it's a muzzle and you're going to connect the three dots with your muzzle. Obviously, your gun has to stop long enough at each point that I describe in order to fire a shot. But pretty rapidly, you find that that stopping is almost uh, imperceptible as you work on it. So basically, uh, we work going upward first, and people think that's because recoil helps you. It really is not about that. It's your eyes can see where you're going. Uh, your gun is not obscuring the next target. Then we work downward, so a number seven, a reverse number seven. Then we start just kind of doing random stuff. So I, I want to build fluidity. And uh, what I started to describe is I will call out the three numbers. And what I'll ask the student to do is without moving, 
to, with their eyes, mentally trace the line connecting those three dots, then I will say fire. And then you trace it with the gun and you shoot it. And that step of mentally tracing it, I find that is uh, really reduces the learning time significantly rather than just shooting it. So learning, basically, you're, you're describing those shapes. So that, that basically, so what I did was I took this group of folks that I had been training uh, for a week every year for several years. And they said, look, John, we've got your technique. You've trained all of our instructors. We don't really need you to do anything technical. We want to do all scenarios. We did scenarios. They had a 20-something percent hit ratio. I took them on the range for about an hour before lunch. I sent them to lunch. I brought them back in. And their hit ratio jumped up to around 50% with a single iteration of this. And then we worked to improve it from there. Um, so that's, that's really the drill. Um, and then that got me thinking about, so what do your eyes do during that? You need to see in video. Well, how do we see normally in life? We see constant stream of images such as video. We don't compose things like we do for still photography. And another analogy I think is really useful is that of driving. We need enough repetitions. So I learned to drive a long time ago and don't really remember, but I, I taught my kids to drive not that long ago and observing how much conscious input a new driver, how much conscious decision-making and effort a new driver puts into getting the car to stop where you want it to stop. If you tell them, okay, I want you to come up to 35 miles an hour. I don't want you to begin stopping until I tell you to stop. And then I want you to stop with your bumper within six feet of that line on the road out there. And you give them plenty of time to do it, but they stop you know, a car length short or six feet over the line. And it's so much effort. And to get around a curve and around a curve at different speed, it's so much effort. They have nothing left over in their mental capacity to think about the driving laws and regulations, let alone to think about other drivers on the road because they're so involved with driving the car. Eventually, of course, we get to where we don't think about how to get the car to go where we want. Hopefully that frees our brain up not to daydream, but to pay attention to what's going on around us and note that, hey, those kids playing soccer there as I'm about to pull past their yard, that ball could come into the road. So you've already kind of pre-planned. Sure enough, here comes the ball, comes into the road. You don't think about how to get the car to go where you want and stop where you want. And we need enough reps with our firearms that we run the firearm in a similar way. We do not have to consciously think about how to get the bullets to arrive where they need to arrive. That frees our mind up to deal with the tactics and the legality and everything else that's going on. So I think it's important that we transition quickly in training beyond static shooting of the still images and get to things that are actually more natural and common. You don't catch a ball by thinking about it in a still image. You track it all the way to the glove or all the way to the bat or all the way to the racket. Um, why do we think we should shoot by forming everything up and then don't move the gun. Uh, that's a whole other thing. It's not don't move the gun. Constantly drive the gun to the center of what you want to hit. So I, I, I've gone on long enough on the topic, but was there some other piece of this that you wanted me to talk about? <laughs> no, you, 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 you've said something in that. You talk about the, the rounds were hitting the wall behind where the person had been. It's a, I'm just going to throw this phrase out there. We're always shooting at the pass. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we're shooting at the past. Um, 
but and just we a couple don't other, have yeah. to be really because right. we need right. to constantly drive. You could say we are we're constantly driving in the past. Well, yes mm-hmm. and no. We're, we should be constantly adjusting while we're running through right. the cycle of trigger manipulation and managing the cycle of recoil. And of course, people that shoot at a high level, they already understand this, but you know, I think it's a big jump for a lot of people and I wasn't seeing it being taught very succinctly. And so that's the way I came up with uh, to teach it. And it's just so many crazy things that I've heard over the years. And I know uh, Hearn's heard this one because he heard from the same source is spread your shots around the target so that you're spreading the damage. And then the other one with that is if you shoot too good of a group on the two dimensional target, you get somebody, you need to, you need to drive and push harder. So it spreads your shots around because like that same spot's not going to be there 20, you know, 0.25 seconds from now. (laughs) If I can't do this on a two dimensional target. Right. Speaking as a medic, even if he doesn't move, if he simply rotates, we're poking, we're poking holes through new anatomy. We need to, and that's another aspect that hunters understand if they're successful about hunting, they think about the target in three dimensions. So they think about the path of the bullet inside Mm -hmm. the animal to make sure that it strikes the vital organs. Yet that is totally missing from some folks uh, looking their approach to defensive shooting. All right. Well, since Hearn joined in, it completely disoriented my window of where everybody is. Uh, I saw uh, Michael Green nodding the most as John Holstrom was speaking, so I'm going to Michael. What's the question? Uh, uh, do you have a question? No, I was just going to you for any comments on what what John was saying. No, I mean, I, I think there was a lot of uh, a lot of really great info there. Um, you know, we just you know, especially when it talks about like eye movement and stuff like that. Um, you know, I see a lot, I see, um, you know, people are, are, you know, you talked about skill level as far as, um, you know, shooting like a bill drill in, uh, in two seconds or, um, or less. And, uh, you know, uh, you look at some folks out there who are high level competitors, um, and, uh, you know, you see them, uh, matter of fact, there's a, uh, there's a high level competitor. Uh, she's a LAPD, uh, police officer and a competitive shooter. Um, can't remember her name. I think it's, um, um, I know exactly. She was involved in a shooting here recently. Yeah. Tony McBride. Tony yeah. McBride. So it's interesting, you know, because, you know, she's a high level shooter and I'm sure she's practicing those bill drills, but you know, there was a shooting and it shows her body cam and everything. And mm-hmm. her splits are, are incredibly long because she's doing exactly what John had described. She's tracking her sights. Every single yep. one of those shots were accounted for. And, uh, you know, I think people, when they train, they forget why they're training. Are they training for this drill? At least I'm not, you know, I'm training to get better at a certain drill but the end result is so that when it comes time to put that sight on something that's trying to hurt me, that I can take my time a little bit and, and get the shots that I need. Um, and, you know, that's that's the thing is people don't have a uh, they're, they're not good at, at, at splitting the two up. You know, you've got your training mode and your defensive mode, uh, you know, in the competition world, they call it training mode and uh, match mode. And uh, 
they don't know how to dial that switch. And uh, I think that's really important. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that John was talking about in regards to eyesight, I just, I've been reading a, a lot about it and I use that same type of, of thought process, but I really like the way he talked about, you know, that, that reverse or upside down seven. I like that a lot um, because, you know, like he said, we practice, you know, the, uh, the casino drill and you get to learn it. You know, I know Tom says you can mess up the, 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 you know, the numbers and do it backwards and stuff like that. But to get that transition, like, like John was talking about, you know, where it really at some point wouldn't even be an actual stop. It'd be like that movie that he's talking about is that it would just kind of slow a little bit and go. Um, so I'd, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper in that on a, on a weekend when I get to the range, I'd like to really see that. Um, I think there's a lot of validity to that. So um, but definitely uh, because people, People don't stand still, you know. Um, the other thing is, we used to, in our CQB classes in Special Forces, we would have the medics come in and they would give this brief and show um, that even if the bullets are going in almost near identical, you know, cavities, that, you know, that shock wave that goes through the body causes trauma, right? Well, the second bullet, if it comes in, is going to cause more trauma, and so, I mean, that, that's the goal is more trauma to the body, the, the, the more chance of it, you know, stopping or going into shock is quicker. So um, it, it's interesting to, uh, to hear all the debates that we, we hear these other instructors that really don't know, and, and not because they don't, I mean, just don't know what they don't know, you know, you know, speaking medic, you know, and again, we had the medics come in and give these classes. So it was interesting to see that. Um, but uh, no, I, I really, I really want to try that. I'm going to, I'm going to do that, John, next time I hit the range. Thanks. Carl Ram. Uh, I'm just going to put my historian hat on and, and mm -hmm. say, you know, if you look at the qual courses that people shot for the last hundred years, really not until mid seventies to early eighties, did you see shooting more than one target and target transitions really become an issue. Steel Challenge is all about target transitions. And modern USPSA is all about being able to drive the gun all over the place while you're moving, right? The uh, Ben Steger's dry fire program, Steve Anderson's dry fire program, uh, you know, all of that, that level, everybody wants to say, well, competition is going to get you killed in the street. But the skill of driving the gun at very high speed, and moving it from wildly varying targets from a you know headshot to a full target at three yards to a pepper popper at 25 yards. That's a strength of USPSA and to a certain degree IDPA that that skill gets developed where it doesn't in tactical shooting classes for the most part, because it's convenient, right? It's convenient to put everybody in front of one target on a square range and you run one drill where you dump a lot of rounds into a single target and yeah, it takes some work to, uh, you know, to do like Holshin did to come up with a way to teach transitions on a single lane. But you know, really, the, the place where that skill is being learned by more people than anything uh, is, is competition shooting, uh, whether it's being applied defensively or not. But it's, it, that skill is certainly critical now. To, you can't win a major match if you can't drive your body and drive the gun and deal with all of those variables in extreme high speed. Yeah, uh, and it's and it's funny. I, I wish Claude could have been here tonight because Claude made a statement one time at dinner that really shaped 
the way I look at putting together my defensive or what I call an application oriented class. And Claude made the comment that, you know, so much of firearms training is nothing but execution scores or firing squad drills. And that just played into just what you just said right there, Carl, is we get us liner shooters out and we run these static drills on static targets because it's convenient and it's easy to do for a whole group. Yeah, there's no but it may not, Right. And so, but it may not be teaching the right things at times. Well, beyond a certain to, point, yeah. I would like to point out that transitions, sure. just to clarify, there, there is a difference in what your eye does if the next target is not in your field of view from the target you're currently addressing. Yeah. So a true transition, when I'm changing from one target to another, my eye does something very different. My eye does lead to the new target and the gun follows. And, and the only reason I bring it up for those that might try this on their own we don't lead with the eyes first. You're on one target. It's just, so what I do is I stand in front of that six dot target and without moving my feet, I move my body around while I tell people with their empty hands, pretending they've got a front sight to hold on my center. And I demonstrate that I'm in their peripheral vision all of the time. All of me is in their vision. They're just continuing to drive to the center of it. So it's a very related skill, but if you study about how to do transitions best, uh, from some of the top shooters, it's a little different than, you know, it, it's a transition only when you got two shot, two targets that are almost overlapping each other. Right. Um, so anyway, it's a small technical difference, but, but it is a little, for those that might want to work on this on their own, I did just want to bring that up. There is a little difference there. Right. My eyes do something different when I do transitions. Sure. Melody. Um. You know, so interestingly enough, I had actually taken John Holshen's uh, block at TACCON a couple of years ago. So I got a little bit of a precursor to it. Um, and what was very interesting for me is before I took John Holshen's, John Holshen's block at TACCON and then saw him again at uh, the, the, tech, um, the shooting summit, I had been to ECQC and I had a moment where I was trying to shoot someone and I shot and to this day I don't actually know whether or not I I hit him at the second time I shot twice um but I thought I had hit him and I turned to address target number two and he attacked me from behind and it was like a, oh wait I shot him he should be down but he wasn't and now I had to deal with someone attacking me from behind and that was a, an extreme learning moment and I think when we start to take kind of like, you know, John was saying, John Hoshin, I know there's lots of Johns on this panel, John Hoshin was saying, when you start putting people into like simunitions or seeing their hit rates when it comes to actual defensive shootings, and obviously we get more actual data from like police shootings than we do civilian shootings, and that makes sense. Um, you start to see that the static kind of training that we're doing does not accommodate is it, it accommodates very well to a certain level but at some point in time you have to break out of that standard square single lane shooting and account for movement and that is very difficult to do safely with the constraints of what we have um, you can do it in force on force and you can do it in, in environments that allow for moving targets but how do you do that on an actual 
live fire range. And I think John has really at least tried to fill that grab, gap, sorry, in a very creative way that um, frankly I'd never seen before. And it was very interesting to take it at TACON and then see it again as at the at the shooting summit. Um, because and I, you know, I'm a I'm a computer programmer by day, and I was thinking about, you know, we have come so far in our technology that I think with watching, you know, John Hearns, his um, interactive targets that he has, I don't think we're far off from having, I was kind of, as we were driving um, away, I was talking to John Johnston about what would it, what would it take to have a target that was, that the, the instructor had on a joystick that they could move the target randomly from side to side, up, down, and the the participant could track the target in real time. Um, those things are coming, and they're coming very quickly. And I think that the more that we can start to incorporate kind of technology in with our training, we can. Um, we also we already already have, you know, um, laser shooting um, that that you can incorporate where things are moving, and you have to track them. Of course, obviously, those are large rooms and you have to have a full facility that supports that kind of technology. But, um, you know, and we, we heard from a couple of presenters over the weekend who were talking about new laser guided technologies that are coming out to help train people better. And I think the ultimate goal that all of us are trying to accomplish is getting people to the point where their training matches the reality of what they're most likely to face. And I, 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 everyone talks about Claude Warner. Claude Warner was so fundamental to me as well is, um, you know, one of the things he said to me very early on when I started teaching was that you can make a good shooter, making a good shooter is easy, but what we really need to be making is thinkers with guns in their hands versus just good shooters. And that the faster that we can get people thinking with guns in their hands, the better they will be in the long run if actually defending themselves is their goal. And that's the that's the majority of the reason that people come to us for training is because they're wanting to use a firearm either for their job professionally as a police officer, perhaps military, or as a civilian who's carrying their firearm out and about and they want to be responsible with it. And we as instructors need to come up with the most I guess, applicable ways to train them how to do that effectively and make good thinkers. And I think John's drill um, is a great way to do that and a very simple way to do that without um, incorporating too much technology. But I think that I think with the technology that is coming, we might get there that we can start doing that. But of course, obviously, if you get to the point where you can do things like force on force or munitions. You get to experience that in real time and having something like that as a stopgap between all I've ever done is square range shooting. And now I'm going, you know, for, for, and I say for reels with bunny ears, because, you know, um, some munitions obviously does not have the blood and gore involved with it, but it is very real, right? You know, I mean, we emotionally feel it the exact same way that we would if it was a real incident. So I think having something that helps fill that gap while we're waiting for technology to kept catch up. That's an amazing way to do that. And I, I tip my hat to him. That was very, very creative. 
you know, Dave Spalding sitting at home raising his hand right now talking, you know, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. He has a target that he can move that's on, on remote control. There you go. Uh, I know uh, John Murphy uh, has interactive targets and his, the Magnificent Steve who works with me has made some interactive targets, but those are all one person at a time. Yeah. And, you know, Louis Arbuck, way, yeah. way back in the day, yeah. interact moving yeah. targets with no shoots, mm -hmm. shoot no shoots, mm -hmm. you know, going back and forth around them. Well, I actually have Rogers one. Of, something like that too? Uh, Rogers is all the pneumatic plates popping up okay. and everything. I actually I have remember. one of Louis Arbuck's uh, personally owned Mirage targets. Oh my god! Box and office. Yeah. Yep. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. John Johnston. Um. So I teach a a nerd class where I ask a bunch of questions of the students, and um, you know maybe. Maybe we come up with cool stuff, maybe we don't. But something that struck me as uh, John Holshin was talking um, was I was thinking about how much of our square range training is essentially, you know, reactionary in so much that we are reacting to the thing that we're seeing and how much of force on force training, uh, specifically when we're coming, uh, when we're specifically discussing shooting is predictive, um, you know, based off of the things that, you know, the, our heuristics are, you know, what we're seeing, we're predicting where that person is going to be and firing a shot so that when they get there, the shot happens to intersect them at the same time that they occupy that point in space. Right. And thinking a little bit more about you know, we talk about moving targets, and I think if I asked everyone, you know, everyone would say, well, moving targets harder to hit than a target that's standing still. And, you know, the more I think about that, I don't know that it's any harder to hit um, because the geometry is not changing. Like a, you know, a grapefruit, you know, in the center of the chest is a grapefruit in the center of the chest, you know, no matter what. Um, it's just so few people have any experience, you know, shooting movers. Um, and predicting where things are going to be that, um, you know, I almost wonder if, especially if we're talking about handguns at typical handgun distances, um, you know, I, I wonder how much of, you know, the perceived difficulty of those shots um, is psychological versus actual um, you know, it's a harder shot. And I guess it doesn't matter at the end of the day, it is what it is. But I say all that to say that um, I've, I've seen Holshin uh, present that at uh, TACCON one year. I got, I got the great honor to uh, sit through that blog and I thought it was super cool. Uh, and it dovetails into a lot of stuff that, um, you know, I certainly am trying to impress upon people if they show up um, to the, you know, the technical nerdery class or whatever. And, you know, at the end of the day, really, you know, I, I think that's an amazing point. Uh, and I can't remember exactly. I think it was um, my ADHD meds have worn off much earlier in the day. Uh, one one of you was talking about remembering what we're training for. I'm maybe Lee. I don't I don't know. Sorry, um, but yeah. At the end of the day, you know, every everything that I do uh, with a handgun and everything that you know I'm trying to prepare students for is being able to 
you know, essentially rise to the occasion if they are forced to. And when a lot of the arguments occur uh, between, you know, other instructors and egos start throwing stuff around and, um, you know, sort of what we were discussing earlier, my gung fu is better than your gung fu. I just kind of wish that everyone were to remember that. And I, I know everyone here does, but just in general, anyone that's listening, um, you know, all of us are deeply invested in the student and all of us are deeply invested in the student because we understand that, you know, if we tell them the wrong thing, um, they could die or someone they care about could. And, you know, this, this all should be fun. Uh, it is fun, but I think maintaining that level of, uh, you know, seriousness and respect of everything is also important as well. All right, John Hearn. Yeah. So, uh, the point was I've been listening to everybody's comment and like, I came with a bunch of good stuff and I have to kind of make it somewhat coherent. I'm going to uh, leapfrog off what Holshin said. He, he brought up our buck and I had the great fortune to do a carving class with Louie a long, long time ago. And even though Louie was a gunsight instructor, he was not afraid to argue doctrine and stuff like that. And one of the first points he made in the class was that the hammer that is firing two rounds off a single sight picture was a square range trick effectively, you know, that, yeah, you can do it, but in the real world, as soon as somebody moves, you're not going to land that second shot and that, you know, every shot that doesn't hit the target becomes a liability for us. So I think that again, uh, we tend to get lost in stuff that works really cool in the square range, but doesn't, apply well in the real world uh one of the thoughts that i had coming back was that you can almost think of it as a logical progression um we always say sights and trigger but i think it's almost a firing solution uh our goal is to teach our students how much firing solution they need and firing solution is that collection of fundamentals so on a very close range target you don't need stance you don't really need sights you don't need trigger you just need the the muzzle on the bad guy you know the gun between your eye and uh, in the eye target line, you can do pretty good work. And part of our goal is to teach people how much of that firing solution they need to develop the problem. And in, in my mind, the first thing the student has to be able to do is press the trigger without disturbing the sights. That's like the basic ground rule. If they can't do that, you can't do anything else. The next thing that they need to be able to do, and we do pretty well in class because it's easy to just teach on the square range, is to transition sights and trigger based on target size. So we have parrot drills. We have all these different drills. I think we did in almost every training evolution where you use more sights or trigger based on the target. I think the next logical progression in that step is exactly what Holshin was doing, the ability to track the gun uh, in a much more of a real-world fashion. And uh, as much as it pains me to admit this in the, I call it the annoying rightness of Bulky and Dobbs, uh, I really love John's session and I immediately made up some of my own targets and went to the range and started playing with this on a timer. I thought that was one of the biggest takeaways I've had from any kind of training in a long time. And consistently, if I was basically moving the gun from, you know, basically one dot to another, uh, kind of like, a, you know, not a gross movement, but like a kind of a, a sudden jerk kind of a movement, it was about a 0.3 to a 0.35 to deliver that shot. If the target moved a little more quicker, it was about a 0.4. And if I wanted to actually hit anything, there was um, there were no splits faster than that 0.3, 0.35 in the real world. Now, John had run a couple of versions where like you might hit the same target twice, like a 1, 2, 2, 3 or something like that. And yeah, you can land that second shot on the same target in a 0.25. 
but nowhere else in that firing solution were were there anything resembling jailbait splits. In fact, these are like, you know, um, excuse me, I correct myself. Um, these, these were, uh, these were uh, splits that would keep you out of jail by a good margin, right? Um, so I was really fascinated with actually seeing the practical application uh, of this. And I think that, you know, almost like the next logical thing is I would, I've tried to teach people, I've got a moving target at my work range. And I think about the next time I teach moving targets, um, I would probably warm them up really, really well on John's target to get them to keep and track the guns. And I think that actually hitting a moving target would be a lot easier after we did that. So I thought it was, I thought it was a great drill. I think it's uh, the way that you can do it on, uh, uh, you know, basically I did it with, uh, you know, three 11 by 17 targets uh, with, with two dots on each and it actually worked out great. And uh, I, I plan on shamelessly stealing that. So thank you, John. Uh, you've got, you give me my next good drill. And I, I remember you the first couple of times I teach it because then after, you know, you give attribution two or three times, you can claim it as your own. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's all just piece of the puzzle. It all fits together. And uh, yeah. All right. A couple of things I would like to bring up here is uh, some of the other people that were not on the show tonight, but they were also presenting. I've already mentioned Claude Warner, uh, Don Ruddle, who was an NTI winner, which we also need to point out that Mr. Holston was an NTI winner, as was Andy, who put it all together. Um, Alan McBee uh, was, was there presenting. I know on s Sunday he ran a drill that was basically a changing gears drill. I don't know what he ran on Saturday because he was in a different group. Does anyone know? I'm sorry, was that on Saturday? Yeah. Yeah, was Saturday, with yeah I was with him on Saturday and it was a, uh, a changing gear type of uh, drill. It was an awareness of sight, uh, sight's trigger, how much sight trigger, just what we were talking mm -hmm. about is necessary for different different targets. Okay. Uh, anybody that, uh, who else presented that we haven't talked about? Alan McBee. Did you talk about Alan? Yeah, we just talked about Alan. Yeah. Uh, who else? I guess that's it. Because <laughs> none of us are thinking about anybody else. I did, and it just did, occurred to me. We got to get Don Riddle, uh, Andy, and Holshin on for ever, an episode on the NTI. Hmm. Be cool. And me. Come on. I was there. I actually managed to, to, to win one year. Thank you. Oh, awesome. you, 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 well, you actually, that's right. well, I must not have been there then. <laughs> all right all right so we'll go around the horn uh, for everybody's final thoughts and throw in anything you got coming up if you want to advertise melody um final thoughts i think this was is such a great event um i know we kind of poke fun at andy for how sort of thrown together it was but i mean there was a certain sort of magic at just bringing a bunch of people together and throwing them in the pot stirring it a couple of times and say make magic happen and i think that's exactly what happened i think some sort of witchcraft happened in this cauldron that he just threw a bunch of things into and I think, you know, um, and I'm very humble because, you know, like myself and, and like John are kind of junior instructors coming up. And I was looking around the room at the number of people, and I know I talked to you, John Hearn, personally, but the number of people who in the room, as far as the instructors, have had such a personal um, 
role in my own development, not only as an instructor, but as a student. Just the things that I have learned. I remember sitting across the table from John Hearn after my very first TechCon and asking him, you know, what do I need to do in order to be a better shooter? And he took the time to, you know, him and Spencer Keepers to lay out, this is what you need to do. And I went home and I took that to heart and I, I applied everything that he told me to. And here many years later, I'm sitting, I'm standing next to him and teaching, you know, as his peer and not as a student. And that was so surreal to me as, you know, a younger instructor coming up. And that wouldn't have happened, weren't it for this kind of a, a situation. And um, I was, I just remember looking at like John Holshin and Carl Wren. I mean, I've interviewed Carl Wren for articles that I've written and, um, you know, and John Holshin and, you know, even yourself, Lee, that I've taken instruction from. And I'm just like, I am not worthy <laughs> to be amongst these people. Um, but the generosity with which this community has not only um, given their information to you know, people like myself who are so eager to learn and want so much to, to carry the torch onto the next generation and even beyond and have been so gracious with their information, um, that would not happen. Um, and we would not be thrown together in such a way were it not for events like this. So I'm, I'm as much as I was like, ah, what are we doing? It was it was a great experience, and I'm I'm honored to have been included. And I thank all of you for uh, for welcoming in, welcoming me into into your groups, and I, I appreciate that greatly. Carl Wren, uh, if people want to read more about what happened at the event or see the videos, I hoovered up a lot of videos from uh, you and from Mike Green and uh, a bunch of folks. And on my blog, blog.krtraining.com, I've got two collections of uh, Instagram videos and other stuff that's pretty detailed beyond what we got into. Uh, Greg Elifritz on active, uh, active response training, I think it's .net, isn't it? That's his blog. There's a lot of stuff. And Claude Werner, the tactical professor, has a ton of stuff. He did like five or six posts about what went on. And uh, people that want to really get into the details of what was taught, what it looked like, what our presentations looked like, uh, certainly invited to go take a look at some of those resources that are out there just to see uh, a little more about what went on. The, the other thing I think was noteworthy was I really think Friday was the most important day because everybody got to throw out their ideas. And if, you know, Andy's talking about collecting all that stuff up together, and I think when his book comes out, if he really harvests all that information up uh, that's going to be a pretty definitive work, I think, of capturing where we are right now in 2022 in terms of what we think about pistol craft and shooting and techniques and things like that. There was a tremendous amount of great information that came out on Friday that uh, nobody's really put that together in one sort of definitive student manual. Everybody's got their personal gun flu book. But, uh, you know, Andy's invited, at least I hope you all got the same note I did, uh, invited us to contribute to the. We weren't going to tell book. Hearn about that. Sorry, sorry, I didn't get that. I, that, that it, no. fell off. But, uh, you know, I think that's that's very cool of Andy to invite us to contribute to the book. And uh, that'll make it, a, a, I think, a really great, great resource if and when he gets the book updated. So I'm excited about that, too. 
John Holson. Yeah, I think for me, just uh, again, the, the enjoyment of so many people bring so many different things uh, to the table. Um, you know, Michael Green, an immense amount of, of practical experience, now a high-level competitive shooter. Uh, you know, John's Hurd's diligent study as well as, as the time in, uh, in law enforcement. Lee, your time training officers and developing the skill set in order to do that. Carl focused on uh, on defensive shooting for years, yet at the same time going out and becoming a very accomplished competitive shooter. And then I love seeing, you know, Melody, John Johnston coming in. They don't have the years of doing it, but they bring the intellect, they bring the passion, they bring the analysis. And in a way, you know, hopefully they're out there looking at, at all the dinosaurs out there in the room and figuring out what from that has some value to put together and move forward. So they're the folks, that next generation, that are really, you know, the point of synergy for a lot of this stuff, as well as as they synergize, of course, they'll come up with their own unique approaches to things. So for me, you know, it, it maybe the little dirty little secret of the whole event was, I think, Andy's intent was it really was all about Thursday and Friday. And frankly, the students uh, were there to enable us on Saturday and Sunday to enable us to be there on Thursday and Friday. Um, but the students at the same time got an immense you know, um, amount of value uh, out of it. Um, you know, I had not seen John Hearns lights in action and seeing particularly Sunday the combination of, of the lights and uh, and the steel and the size targets that was that was really interesting and useful so for me again it's just really uh, the personalities are awesome and the knowledge is awesome to get to share in that is very enjoyable Michael Green yeah, I, um, you know, I, I said it before, you know, I know we were out there to teach on Saturday and Sunday, but, uh, you know, I learned just as much, you know, listening to John and uh, John, <laughs> John, and, but, uh, but seriously, I, I did, I enjoyed it. And honestly, um, I wish that I had the opportunity, you know, to hear you speak, Lee, also Carl and Melody and, and everyone else that I missed, you know, um, I wanted to see Hearn's light show, you know, um, that was, I, I, I was so impressed by that. When I was talking to him, I was so impressed by that concept. I was like, oh man, and I never even got to see it. So I'm gonna have to get out there and take a John Hearn class one of these days, just so I can see it in action. Uh, but there was just, there was so much information, so much knowledge, out there and uh you know it's it's um it's great you know catching up with old friends too you know john holson and i have known each other for years uh you know i know claude warner i met him years ago when i went to uh uh to um um rogers rogers back in like the, the early 2000s um you know, um, I met Andy with, when I, uh, when you taught that class for insights, you know, it just, uh, it was, it was a really good, you know, full circle for me, as far as that goes. Um, and, and, you know, like someone else had said, I, I think it was, uh, John Johnson said something about, you know, us, um, you know, having the opportunity to interact with folks that we had read articles from, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, Hey, you know, in our younger days. So, um, I would have loved to have seen again, the same thing, the same crew, 
but instead of us teaching students that we would have had the opportunity to rotate through with each other because uh, it was Absolutely. it was fabulous um you know uh, you know, I got to uh, uh, hang out and drive uh, Bobo up to the airport, you know, and uh, I couldn't get enough of that guy, man. I tell you, I could listen to him all day long. I really enjoyed some of the stuff that he was talking about, but there was just so much information, you know, um, I, I couldn't take it all in and I, I wish it was longer. You know, I wish I had more time up there. Um I, I really enjoyed the opportunity of staying in the bunkhouse. It wasn't, you know, the, uh, you know, as we get older, you know, we, we like to be uh, pampered a little bit um, and stay in those nice hotels. Uh, but um, I, I really, I would stay in the, uh, in the team room again, just to get that interaction because after we had dinner, then I would go back to the team room and, and then, you know, I had other instructors and other students that I could interact with and, and, just listening to the the stories there was was great you know and then you know andy going on rampages at night sometimes talking about things i was like man this is this is awesome he had some classic stories yeah so i, I would i would gladly stay there again and it was it's kind of like a camping trip for me so you know i, I really enjoyed it and uh, i really appreciate every one of you um i i Again, I would love to uh, spend more time with every one of you. So uh, thank you for uh, for letting me uh, hang out with you all. Really, seriously. And thank you for having me on, Lee. Sure, thank you. John Johnson. Um, man, it was just really cool uh, to be included in that. And, you know, as, as Melody kind of said, and... Uh, we we are certainly the instructors we were the youngest instructors there and you know i found myself at several points um you know especially on uh well frankly day one and day two um you know i've i've taken classes from you lee and carl and uh even hern and you know <laughs> Uh, I always just kind of feel like, hey, I've got a lot more to learn about all of this. And especially in recent years, I've been trying to, um, you know, just listen more. And I kind of, you know, found myself when it was my turn to present just being like, oh, man, I really don't want to say anything here. I want to listen to these other guys uh, talk a little bit more, you know, so it was it was a weird feeling. Right. But um just really cool one of the coolest things i've been part of and uh wouldn't wouldn't trade it for anything you know anxiety and all as far as stuff we've got coming up um you know melody and i teach a class uh uh called the armed parent slash guardian uh some of y'all have seen it but we've got one coming up in uh washington state uh, at the end of the month, July 23rd, 24th, Rick Remington is hosting that in Burlington. Got some more classes coming up too. So you can find that, uh, I'd say on the citizens defense research website, but that's kind of a running joke right now. Melly's making a face. Uh, you can, you can look at our event, right. Um, and, uh, our, our web address, citizensdefenseresearch.com will redirect you to that. You can sort of see what we've got coming up but uh lee thanks so much for having me on the show too 
Well, it, was, it was turned about as fair play. I've been on your show a number of times. So it was fun to finally have you here. Well, thanks. I, uh, I appreciate that. Mr. Hearn. Uh, just, just definitely a lot of what other people said, that was a very unique experience and I'm really, really glad I did it. I wasn't sure what I was getting into when I hit it up that way. Uh, there's those of us who are used to events run by Tiffany Johnson. This event was not run by Tiffany Johnson, but it still worked really, really well. I don't know if I mentioned it yet, but uh, it was great to see Jaeger again. I appreciate him opening up his house to us. I've known Jaeger probably since 1999, back in the Glock Talk days and stuff like that. So I'd like to give, give him a shout out real quick. I know he's got his health stuff going on and stuff like that, but it was great to see him. And I really do appreciate that opportunity to share some of the stuff I've picked up uh, over the years uh, in, in his house as well. And it was great being there with everybody and just being able to bounce ideas. I did like Michael Green because there was a, you know, there's been some allusions to John and Melody being the youngest people there. I love being in the team room where uh, when I go to bed at like nine or 10 o'clock at night, there's already somebody in the rack ahead of me. So I didn't feel bad at all. So it was a, it was like deer camp, but more sober and everybody went to bed at a better time. So uh, a, a great time. I would definitely do it again. As far as upcoming stuff, I'm in Phoenix in August. Cecil Birch is hosting me for two lectures. I'm doing who wins, who loses and why. And my class on defeating violent criminals, uh, that's uh, August. I uh, just booked Chicago area classes in September. That'll be who wins, who loses, and why in cognitive pistol. Uh, October, I'm teaching a bunch of stuff for Tom, both the instructor reunion and his pistol craft instructor class. November, I'm out at Mead Hall for classes yet to be determined. And I, I guess I'm probably going to be in Baton Rouge in January of 23. I'm already booking out there. So uh, Eventbrite for me is actually the best place to find me. I, I've got to do some jazzing up of the website. So if you search my name on Eventbrite, I'll pop right up and you can sign up for all the classes you'd ever want to make you think with the gun in your hand. All right. Uh, just in closing, on Sunday evening when we, when we were all done at the range and we came back to the, to the classroom facility, and and had all the instructors come up and said, you know, in order to get your certificate for being here, you've got to say what your biggest takeaway from each other was and what your biggest takeaway from the students was. And then each student had to get up and and say what their biggest takeaway was. And, you know, at first I was like, I was ready. I had a six hour drive ahead of me and I was like, I, I need to get on the road. I don't want to stand here for this. And then I just stood the whole time like, well, well this is actually pretty cool. I'm actually enjoying hearing all of this. And I'm struck by the notion of for four days, we set aside the tribalism that is just so rampant in the firearms training world. And we were all of us as presenters were taught a lesson by this group of students that they could come in and be good students, even if they were being presented material that was not necessarily in lockstep of what they were used to on their norm. And that a group of type A high ego people, because let's face it, we wouldn't be doing this if we weren't ego driven a little bit. Uh, you know, we were able to set all that aside when we focused on the students' needs. We focused on delivering a good product for the students who showed up and were spending their hard-earned money on being there. And I just left thinking about that, you know, if that's something I want to carry on when I'm teaching solo is focus on their needs versus what I want to present, what I think people need to know.
And I would just like, you know, just that's the thing I want all the, the instructors that hear this to think about and for us to all to go away thinking about ourselves. And uh, I thank each of you for taking your time out to be here tonight. This is kind of a long episode. And uh, I know that your time is a big deal to you as well as the audience. I know that your number one asset is your time. And thank you for choosing to spend it with us. Owen. Thank you to Andy for putting it all together. This was probably some just maniacal plan that Andy had to make us all do this. Yeah. And it, it worked. Yeah. And, uh, all right. And with that, so long, everybody.